Today we're going to be talking about the blessed ones. We're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And it's on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, we always encourage you to look it up and see it for yourself. Revelation 6, 9 to 11, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. And they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world? And avenge our blood for what they have done to us. And then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us in your word today. And we thank you for your graciousness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, 2 Timothy chapter um, 3, verse 12 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you like God's promises? You know, we like the ones that are like, you know, he'll give you what you need. uh, He'll keep you fed and clothed and watch over you and love you and all that stuff. But this is a promise just as much as any other promise in the word. And we find that all over around, all around the world today, uh, there are people suffering. Uh, Open Doors Ministry uh, has a website. There are two really good websites that I encourage you to look at. Open Doors is one, and the other one is Voice of the Martyrs. And they're both excellent resources on the suffering church around the world. Uh, in fact, I just want to throw a little plug in. This uh, coming May the 8th, our Christian Motorcycle Association is going to have a garage sale here at the church, and all the proceeds are going to uh, what's called Run for the Sun, and part of Run for the Sun is Open Doors, ministry that's uh, getting Bibles and Scripture and helping the persecuted church around the world. So if you want to come buy something or if you want to donate something or whatever, um, be sure and see us after, and we'll get more information. But Open Doors, as I said, is a ministry, and... um, This is what they put in their website just recently. A woman in India watched as her sister was dragged by a Hindu nationalist. and She doesn't even know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in North Korean prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious, only to be beaten again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She escaped from a group of people who kidnapped her, but now she's pregnant. And when she comes home, her community and family will reject her. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come home uh, or come down the church um, street to their church sanctuary um, after having some meals together. It's Easter Sunday and a bomb blasts and the four kids are killed. I just saw a news uh, thing this morning on Fox News that 14 were killed this morning in Indonesia by two uh, terrorists who uh, went outside a Catholic church. And uh, they were wanting to go in. It was between uh, services, and some were leaving, and some were coming in. 
and there, they had guards that were watching what was going on. And when the guards thought something was suspicious and began to move toward them, they detonated their bombs, and 14 people lost their lives. You're not going to hear much about it in our media today. Thankfully, Fox News covered that one. But statistics are telling us that 340 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians have been killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other buildings have been attacked. 4,277 believers have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And these numbers are heartbreaking, but they don't tell the whole story. And yet James, when he was writing to a group of people that were being persecuted, said, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. These are sobering things, right? And I know you didn't come to church to be, uh, you know, depressed or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, in our text today, there were a lot of people that were around the throne, that are still around the throne, who have lost their lives in testimony for Jesus, and there's more to come. Because Jesus said you have to wait until the number is complete. It's hard to understand and hard to fathom that. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright gives this opening commentary on Revelation 6. He says there are three ways of ending a chess game. The first is that one player or the other simply wins the game. There's no question. It's checkmate. The second is that the two participants might agree that it is um, a draw, that nobody's going to win it. And then the third way is that somebody gets frustrated and kicks the table and knocks the board and scatters the pieces. (laughs) How many of you, that's your your typical way of ending a chess game? (laughs) And it's not a very good way to do it, but, uh, you know, there's some people who think that God should just kick the chessboard. He should just wipe the pieces out. Why does he let this go on? Why is there pain and suffering? If he's sovereign, if he's good, why does he let this keep going? That's a really good question. It's a legitimate question to ask. It's something that most, I think, everybody in this room has felt at one time or another, that I don't understand what God is doing. There are people who have given up on God, and they express their frustrations like this. But God doesn't just kick the chessboard. He hasn't kicked it to the curb. Nor is he playing for a draw. The whole book of Revelation brings us to the conclusion that it's going to be checkmate and he's going to win. All right? We need to understand that. But in the meantime, it's like the prayer that the Israelites were praying when they were in Egypt under slavery and oppression. They said, how long, O Lord, how long? Has anybody here ever said, how long? You know, how long is it going to be, Lord, before this stuff is finally taken care of? As this sentiment goes all the way back, how long, Lord? How many of you have ever said, why, God? 
Why? Whether for ourselves or somebody we love, why, Lord? This is one of the cries of anyone who lives in a broken and fallen world. But we learn four things from our text today. First of all, we learn that those who have died in Christ are living and conscious and mindful of the fact that the world is still unjudged and unhealed. They're saying, why, O Lord, or how long, O Lord, how long? How long before you judge this world? How long before you avenge our death? Secondly, these people are told they must wait. They're given these white robes, and they're said, you must wait a little longer. How many of you, the most exciting thing about your Christian walk is waiting? Patience. We don't do well with it, and here are the saints in the presence of God that are also going, how long? You know, I mean, they're, they're in the presence of God, you know. Uh, their, their pain and suffering is no more, but they're still agonized by the lack of justice, waiting for it to happen. Patience. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 21, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. How many of you could say amen with that? And if children were heirs, amen, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Oh, wait a minute. Can't we get the Reader's Digest version and X that out? But we, if we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. Suffering and glorification are two sides of the coin. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know, we see the environmental catastrophes that are happening on this earth. And we can argue all day long about the causes. But one thing's for certain. Creation is sick and tired of us. Creation is groaning. Creation is saying, how long, Lord? How long? It's been subjected to this futility. It's not functioning the way God had originally intended. And yet even in the ruins of what we see, the leftover of all that's going on, it's still an amazing thing to behold, isn't it? Think about what it'll be when God sets it free. Or Paul writing to the Corinthians, he said it this way. We have this treasure, and it should be 2 Corinthians, by the way. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our body. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory 
far beyond all comparison. You know, when you're in suffering and somebody says, it's momentary and light, how many of you want to just reach up and smack them in the nose? Hmm? Doesn't feel like it when we're in it. But Paul's writing from experience. He's been persecuted. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. He's experienced all these things, and he says it's just temporary. The glory that's going to be revealed is worth every single thing. And so, he says, we, not, we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have to have an eternal perspective, or we will never be able to understand what's going on. How many of you would say, God does not run the world the way in which we assume it should be done? Anybody here? God, I don't like the way you're running things. Hmm? Yeah. If, if you're not human if you don't go, God, what are you doing? I don't understand this. I'm completely perplexed by it. I've said this to him. I don't like the way you do things. If I had somewhere else to go, I would. You know, when Jesus was talking with disciples of his, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And a bunch of them said, that's enough. This guy is off his rocker. And they left, and he looked at Peter and the others, and he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, well, if we had anywhere else to go. <laughs> but you alone have the words of eternal life. And sometimes when we're in these kinds of turmoil situations, you know, we're like, boy, if there was anywhere else. But you're the one that has the words of life, and so you're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you. And God pulls us through. And he carries us through these things. But yes, it's not unusual for us to say, I don't understand how God's doing things. But as we studied last time, the four horsemen represent the evils of this world, whether they're specific persons or symbols. And they're allowed to reach the height of wickedness, including the martyrdom of even more saints, because God in his plan is working something out. I want you to notice what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He writes, Paul and uh, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, it's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication that God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, oops, after all, it is only fitting or just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among you who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And he goes on to say, To this end we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and to fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught that in the Romans passage, the, first, the second Corinthians passage or this one, but there's suffering for him and there's glorification in him, that we will be glorified with him. You see, it isn't all for naught. God has a plan. But one of the things that's very difficult is that God has this principle where he lets iniquity grow and, and fester until it comes to its full fruition. And, and we might wonder, well, why does God do that? Let me just su- suggest this to you. What if the first time you ever lied, the first time you ever disobeyed your parents, the first time you ever mocked God, the first time you ever stole something, God kicked the chess board and said, I'm done with you. Where would you be if God had done that? But he didn't. Some people have said, well, God, you know, they've been saying he's coming back and We've been waiting for centuries, and now it's just kind of like, are you guys ever going to get over it? And Peter says, what? He said, God is not slow about his promise, as some call slowness. But he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why does he delay his judgments? Because he's merciful. And he's good. He will do it. When the fruition of time comes, when the fullness, he tells the martyrs around the throne, when, when the number of the martyrs is complete, I'm stepping in. When God gave the promise to Abraham way back when he said, all this land is going to be yours someday, but right now it's, going, it's actually going to take 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What was he saying? The sin of the people of the ground in which you're walking is not yet full for judgment. I'm waiting to give them a chance. And they didn't. They didn't repent. And you can read your Bible and see the rest of the story. But how are we supposed to respond then whenever we might be treated the way we don't want to be treated? Jesus said it in the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says you're blessed. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he said, you've heard it was said that you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
How many of you feel that way? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Now, he's not saying that when you pray for them, you've got to feel good about it. This is for you. And as Jesus was being nailed to the cross and rejected by his own, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, he practiced what he preached, and he bids us to do the same. And there's no way we can do it except by the grace of the Holy Spirit within us. But let me tell you something. Because the Spirit is in you, no matter what comes your way, you'll be able to do it. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. You'll find strength you didn't know you had. You'll find a way. You'll find joy. You'll find life. And you'll be able to say, Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In the knowledge that he will judge and make it right in the end. And you could turn it over to him. And you can be free. Heavenly Father, may we take these words to heart. May we be like Jesus. May we... Follow in your steps, Lord. It's hard, but we know that the Spirit of God within us can make it possible. And I pray for those, Lord, suffering even right now in various ways. That by the grace of your Spirit, you give them a sense of joy in the midst of that sorrow. That a joy that can't be explained. A joy that has absolutely no um, rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> except that you are in them producing that joy in them. And so, God, may they find grace today. On this Palm Sunday, as you entered that city and you knew you were going to give your life, you knew you were going to be rejected, you knew that the same crowd crying out Hosanna would cry out, crucify him. And yet, Lord, you proceeded because you were pursuing to save souls. Thank you for finishing the work and giving us a hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.